As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. And this wasn't Watergate. Let's face it, this wasn't Watergate, but this is still accountability journalism. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We are investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On today's episode, rules aren't made to be broken. The anonymous tip about an elected official that led to a heated exchange. And crash cleanup fees, the widespread practice that could have you paying for an accident you didn't cause. Hello, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with Brian Polson. Hi. And Jenna Sachs. Hi. The old saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, definitely fits one of Brian's stories. He found an elected official in Kenosha was not following the same rules as everybody else. Holly Kangas is serving her first term on the Kenosha City Council, but for the past five years, she and her husband have been flipping houses for profit. They just haven't been getting the permits to do most of the work. This house you guys sold, you had 80% new plumbing, all new ductwork. Is that accurate? I didn't accurate? put that in. The real estate agent did. So So is the real estate agent wrong? Are you throwing them under the bus? Absolutely not. So this one started with a tip from a source who asked to remain anonymous. The tipster said Holly Kangas was an elected official who had a pattern of doing construction and rehab work without getting the proper permits. The source told me the name of the company she used to do the housing rehab work and supplied us with copies of MLS listings that claimed these houses had been totally remodeled. Before I knew if there was even a story, we had to document what was being alleged. So we started by sending producer Pete to the Kenosha County Register of Deeds office. He found every property bought and sold by Kangas's company in recent years. Then we submitted open records requests to, uh, to the city for all permits issued at those properties during the time her company owned them. This was all just to find out if this thing is really happening. It quickly became clear there were almost no permits for the work she claimed to have done. So from there, we had to reach out to both city inspections department and then, of course, to the elected official, Holly Kangas herself. And that's when things got interesting. I've explained this to you. We've hired professionals for big jobs. Okay, so the professionals you hired for this job didn't get the proper permits? I don't know. If you didn't find one, then apparently not. And I'm done now. Thank you. All right, so we just heard from this unscheduled interview over at City Hall. But, Brian, what led up to that in terms of putting everything together? I know you talked about your process, but going into this, what did you know and and what points did you know you had to hit with Holly Kangas when you were well, I said, the her. very first thing was we, we, you get a tip and you just want to know is is that is what this person's saying backed up by anything. So we got all the documents and the documents seemed to be pretty clear that there was work done on these houses, substantial work, and they were sold for a hefty profit and there were no permits. So the question is, is what I'm seeing here really what I think I'm seeing? So my first thought was let's talk to Holly Kangas herself. And that's where it all started. I made a phone call. 
Uh, she returned my call, and we had an initial conversation. And right off the bat, she said, you know what, Brian, um, my husband and I started this business on the side after the economic downturn in 2008. Um, their own businesses weren't doing so well, and they needed some extra income. And so they started doing this, and she said, we were a bit naive. And immediately I wrote that down in my notepad because I thought a bit naive means, yeah, what you found is what you think you found. Um, this is an explanation, not a uh, denial. So from there, we had a further conversation, and I told her, I said, Holly, I'd love to sit down and talk to you on camera about this so that you can give us context. If these were innocent mistakes, you were new at this, you didn't quite know what to do, um, sit down and tell us that. And uh, she said she would go back and talk to her husband and get back in touch with me, and then I didn't hear from her again for at least a full week. Can you tell me about the day you went to see her? What was the circumstance that led up to you talking to her? Yeah, so uh, a week after that first conversation, I hadn't heard anything. So I called again and I said, Holly, uh, I, I haven't heard from you. We're doing a story. I'd like to talk to you about this so we can hear your side of things. Were these oversights or were you intentionally doing work without getting proper permits to save money or cut corners or whatever it might have been? And uh, And she called me back again that day. This time the tone was different. The first time we spoke... I got the impression this was someone who, uh, you know, she and her husband were new, they were naive, they'd made some mistakes, and they wanted their, you know, the voting public to know there was nothing intentional here. Um, there was a tone of contrition. There was, and there was also a tone of, hey, we want to be fully transparent. We don't want to, you know, we have nothing to hide. Um, so I thought she'd be more than willing to sit down and talk about this. <laughs> a week later, I had the impression, no, that's not the case. And when she called the second time this week later, the tone had completely changed. I don't know what your story is. There's no story here. I told you. Um, and she was not going to consider an interview. That night, there was a city council meeting. Um, in fact, it started with a finance committee meeting, and Holly Kangas sits on the city's finance committee, which is a powerful committee because they control the purse strings for the city of Kenosha. And in fact, they oversee some of the work that's done by the inspections department itself. So that puts her in a position of authority over the very people who would have potentially been holding her accountable for this work that was so done before she was she's elected. She's the boss of the people who are in charge of holding her accountable then for these In permits. a sense, yes, certainly. I mean, you know, the, any elected official, they're, they're the ones who control policy for the city. And in this case, it was the finance committee. So that's the, the background. We went to go see her before the meeting and, and we got there. Those are, of course, public meetings. Everyone's welcome to come. And we just waited in the hallway for her to arrive. And when she did, I attempted to speak to her. And uh, it was clear from the very first moment that she wanted nothing to do with talking to me, certainly not with a camera around. And how did how she responded to you impact where your story went from there? Well, I, I think I, you don't go into these things hoping to, quote unquote, confront someone. I wanted answers. I had questions I really wanted to know. For instance, these MLS reports that were listing these houses for sale said there had been new plumbing work done. There had been new furnaces and water heaters and electrical work and all sorts of things that certainly suggest they should have gotten permits. I wanted to know, first of all, these MLS reports were supplied to me by a source. Are they accurate? Have they been doctored? Are they what they look like? So I wanted to show her what was in my hand and ask her, is this legitimate? And the very first question I was able to, when she, first she said, no, I don't want to talk to you. And I continued to follow her into the committee room. And I said, but I, but take a look at this. You wrote these things in your MLS report. And her response was, I didn't write that. 
which was a surprise because I didn't, she wasn't denying that that was an authentic listing. She was saying, I'm not responsible for what's in my own listing. And so then I asked, well, are you throwing your realtor under the bus? Because the realtor is the one who actually writes up the listing. She said no, but that was certainly the impression that, that I came away with. And, and as that went on, that whole exchange, I just continued to ask questions about what was in those reports. And uh, as time went on, she would, she would give me an answer. And then that I would follow up and she didn't like the follow-up question. And two or three different times she told me she was done or to get out of her face. Um, it, it, was, it, was a, it, it definitely became a confrontational situation when it didn't have to be. And it sounds like in, in that case it was revealing because the story kept changing. Her story, yes. Her story, her explanation was changing with each answer. Uh, you know, the first time she calls, they were a bit naive. We admit we've made some mistakes. The second time, it's, uh, I didn't write that report. My realtor did. When I ask her, well, then are you blaming your realtor? No, 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 no. We had professionals do some of this work. Um, so are you blaming the professionals for not getting the proper permits? So yeah, the story, the, the sort of gold line kept moving. I feel like we often hear with properties that are for sale that you know, maybe a permit was or wasn't pulled or when you, you would get into a new house and you bring someone in, then they say this work was done without a permit and this isn't up to code or whatever they, they say that's disappointing to the new homeowner. Um, are permits that big of a deal? I mean, is this something that she should have known that she needed to follow? What was your conclusion there? Well, and that's certainly one of the questions from the outset is, okay, how big of a deal is this? You certainly have heard many people, you can talk to a lot of people who have done work on their own homes, and they say, yeah, I fixed up the bathroom, or I worked on the basement, or I did something, and and I didn't get the permits. Some people look at permits maybe as just sort of an extra tax that the city is imposing because they want to collect some fees. But there is a real reason behind those permits, and that is that an inspector looks at the work to make sure it's up to code, to make sure electrical work doesn't pose a danger to a future homeowner to make sure that plumbing work isn't going to cause a flood. And in this case, this wasn't a homeowner doing a little bit of renovation work on their own property. This is someone who was for a profit buying homes cheap, fixing them up and renovating them almost completely, and then selling them to new owners. So if they're doing all of that work, you want to make sure that work is being done safely and that the next homeowner isn't buying something that could potentially be a danger. That's the whole reason for the process. But then there's the added layer that this is now an elected official who, whose job it is to hold other people accountable for following the rules, who's for setting those policies. What are the rules? And this was someone who was it, – it, it appeared to be potentially a case of maybe hypocrisy. I want to go back to um, when you had your in-person discussion with Holly Kangas because from a journalism perspective, if someone, especially someone in power, especially someone who's elected is refusing to answer questions, oftentimes we show up and you'd think people would know that by now, but some people don't. Why, Why is that important and why was that something you felt like needed to be part of this story. The, us showing up to speak? Yes. Well, I mean, again, when, when you're, if this, if this was a private individual, um, it wouldn't have made it any less safe to have done all this work. But when you are elected, obviously there's an extra added layer of expected accountability. Um, now, Holly made it a, a point when we uh, approached her at this meeting that she's a new elected official. She was just elected in April of 2018. So in terms of the political game and what the standards are when you do and don't talk to the media, I, I can say I, I'm sure this was a new experience for her. Um, when it comes to what she should or shouldn't have known, her profession outside of City Hall, outside of being 
a, a council person is that she is a licensed title insurance agent and has worked for a title insurance company for 34 years. I think it was 34. Mm-hmm. That's off the top of my head. A long time. And she was, I believe, in a management position at a title company. So she knows real estate. And she ought to know what the rules are and aren't with regard to permits. And I think that's one of those cases where when someone who's in a position, they've been elected by the members of the general public, and they don't want to answer questions, you know, that's, that's one of those times where you have an opportunity. I know where you're going to be. You're going to be at a meeting. Um, it's the public's business, and that's the chance to ask them these questions. Brian, you mentioned earlier that this was an anonymous source. Are there special considerations that you take into account when someone wants to remain anonymous? Well, sure. And, and you know, we get, you guys, uh, we've all worked with anonymous sources. Uh, people often ask, uh, maybe one of the number one questions we get asked is, where do you get your stories? Where do they come from? And they can come from any number of things. We've worked on a story before that has a new development, or we see something on our own air in daily news that we go, wow, that calls for further digging. But oftentimes it's viewer tips, and those can come by phone, email, out in the public. Somebody stops you on a street corner and says, hey, have you looked into X, Y, or Z? Um, Anonymous tips are not unusual because a lot of people have concerns about something. They don't really want to get involved. They want to bring you the information. Sometimes they're whistleblowers. They work for an organization or an agency, and they want to blow the whistle on something, but they don't want – they fear repercussions. And oftentimes they have a bias. The, the general, you know, the, the truth is I've worked in this business long enough to know very few tips come in from someone who doesn't have their own agenda. So that sets the bar a little higher in terms of, okay, I'm going to take your information, but I've got to make sure I can prove it. Is it verifiable? Is it accurate? And, and if I can take what you've told me and verify all of it and after verifying it decide, yeah, there's a story here, then, then yeah, of course, we're going to protect people's anonymity. If we don't protect sources – we don't get a lot of this information. Well, and the key is knowing what that agenda is from the outset. So if you have the information and can operate accordingly and do that verification you were just describing, then you can still have a story where people can see the facts and make up their own minds. I've often told a lot of sources who come to us, they don't want to reveal their agenda because they think that will hurt their credibility and they think that we won't want to pursue the story. I've tried to tell many people over the years the reverse is often true. If I know going in what your agenda is, I can evaluate what you're telling me with a little more reason, a little more perspective, and I know just how high the bar is for me to go out and prove what you're saying is true. Holly Kankas has a lot of supporters, a lot of friends Absolutely. who I, I sit kind of a few feet away from you and heard some of them calling you the next day after the story aired. What was the reaction from that? Because Sometimes when it's someone we like on a personal level, there can be a very strong reaction to seeing them deal with tough questions from the media. Well, let's face it. Holly Kangas is someone who has a lot of supporters in Kenosha and uh, probably one of the reasons she was elected to the city council in the first place. And uh, she's a mother. She's a grandmother. I got a lot of people calling me just saying, this is a wonderful mother and grandmother. How could you do this to her? And and of course, uh, I, I commend her for anything she's done as a family person, as a business person, as a friend, as a, a you know someone giving service to the community. Um, with all that said, you can like a person a lot. They still have to, there's still certain things that they have to do right. They have to follow the rules, and if they tell you a story and it turns out not to be the case, or their story changes, it's our job to hold those people, especially those we elect to represent us, to hold them accountable. Especially, I mean, when it comes to these stories, it's not just about the one person and the one instance or just about permits. A, a lot of times, it's about in general elected leaders knowing 
hey, we're watching, and that in itself can prevent a lot of corruption. So I think it's good sometimes for people to understand it goes beyond the one person and the one circumstance. Well, and this wasn't Watergate. Let's face it. This wasn't Watergate, but this is still accountability journalism. And sometimes sometimes the most important stories are local stories that don't have that broad. This may, this may have affected a few, a small number of people in Kenosha, the city, but the bigger implication is should elected officials have to follow the rules we all follow? And should those elected officials be given special treatment by, uh, say, a, a government entity um, simply because they're elected officials? If you have more information on this or any other tips, I mean, again, we've talked about anonymous tips here. If you want to bring us a tip, we want to hear from you. That's where so many stories begin. Call our Fox 6 Investigators tip line, 414-586-2777, or send an email to the investigators, T-H-E investigators, at fox6now.com. Imagine this. You're driving to the Wisconsin State Fair and your car gets rear-ended. It's a shock, but the damage isn't too bad and you're able to drive away. It was the other driver's fault, so their insurance covers everything. And that sounds like the end of the story. And that's what one local man thought. But then he got a bill for $500 in the mail. And that's when he reached out to Jenna. I could understand if they billed the at-fault driver, but... uh. You know, nothing, nothing fell off my truck. There was no cleanup. So I don't, I don't know why I'm getting a $500 bill for it. It's like a restaurant billing you for somebody else spilling their drink and having to clean it up. So at first, this man, his name is Ed, was very confused about what this bill was for. It was from the city of West Dallas, and once he dug into it a little bit, he found out he was being charged for the crash cleanup. And that's when the fire department is called to a crash scene, and they have to sweep away any debris, clean up any fluids, and basically do whatever is necessary to return the road to safe conditions for other drivers. Now, because Ed didn't cause this crash, he thought the bill was unfair, and he didn't want to pay it. And we wanted to help him figure out what his options were. And also, we had a lot of questions about these cleanup fees. And when we looked into them, we found out these kinds of fees are actually becoming much more common locally. So we thought we should do a report. So what's the justification for these fees? What's the rationale behind them? Well, fire departments are dealing with tighter budgets um, these days, and they're trying to come up with creative ways to have more funding without raising taxes. So these kinds of fees um, are something that are, are appearing in more and more communities. And it's it's, it's basically a way of bringing in more funding because fire departments are also busier. They're responding to more medical calls um, than fires these days, and that's taking up a lot of time and resources. So let me get this straight, though. So these these uh, policies or fees that you're talking about, obviously the fire department or the city, they it costs them money to send the fire department out to go and scrape up the glass and pick up the pieces and whatever. They're just trying to recoup some of those costs. But if I understand this correctly, this is a case where you're involved in a crash. You did absolutely nothing wrong. Except drive. You, except drive <laughs> Which isn't community. wrong. The other guy or person is at fault, and you're getting a bill? That's exactly what Ed told me. He thought it was extremely unfair, and it turns out the policy in West Dallas is, um, regardless of blame, any person who gets into an accident in the city of West Dallas who is not a resident um, is going to be charged a flat $500 for the crash cleanup fee if the fire department has to come to the scene and sweep away anything or clean up any fluids or, or do anything to make the road safe again. So it seems unfair especially to Ed, that he would have to pay when he was just driving down the street. He didn't do anything wrong. Um, but police departments and fire departments often aren't in the a position of assigning blame on crash scenes. They just want their money because they're short on it. 
Uh, well, you, you know, a lot of times it's the city that's saying to them, can you find another way to come up with mm-hmm. funding to supplement your budget? Um, so this is something that's be- kind of been, um, I guess, becoming more and more common over the last five years or so. It makes me wonder how much that opens the door for other things. So, you know, the theory behind charging someone who doesn't live there is the person who lives there pays taxes and already pays for this service. But then, you know, if I don't live in West Alice, but I drive on their roads and I'm putting wear and tear on their roads, at what point am I paying for that? There are a lot of things that people who don't live in the municipality um, end up using, but they're not paying for. So how does this compare to what other places are doing, because I know there's a wide variety of policies kind of along these same lines. There is a a lot of variation between different communities and what they're doing when it comes to charging for crash cleanup fees. Some don't charge at all. Some do. Um, In West Dallas, one reason they do have these fees is because they have a lot of drivers from outside the area. They have some major thoroughfares. They have people going to the Wisconsin State Fair. So it's more convenient for them to charge out of city drivers than a community like Franklin, where they don't have a lot of drivers from outside the area getting involved in crashes, and they might not recoup any costs from having such a fee in place. But from one community to the next, um, there's a lot of variation. Some charge their own residents in addition to non-residents. Some will charge you based on the severity of the crash, whether it was minor, moderate, or major. And some will only charge you for incidents that happen on the interstate. So you really don't know what's going to happen if you get into a crash crash in in some of the communities in southeast wisconsin make sure i understand west alice's case are they charging everyone involved in crashes or only non-residents only non-residents so there i'm guessing the rationale there is our residents are paying taxes for these services you don't live here but you've cost us the use of these services so we want some of this money from you exactly and your own residents aren't going to get that upset because they aren't the ones who have to pay for it has and anyone they challenged you. this because i would think it would seem to me and i'm not a lawyer and i don't know what the law on this would be but mm-hmm. if i have no fault i didn't cause the use of the city service and you're billing me would that bill hold up in court well a lot of the people i contacted about this story didn't know a whole lot about these fees you know from a, a lawmaker's perspective they didn't seem to have a lot of knowledge that these fees were in place to begin with. Um, But I guess one way you could object to this is not paying the fee. And we found out that a lot of people aren't. In West Dallas, 30 to 40 percent. Let me double check that. I think it was 30. Yep. Let me double check it. But in West Dallas. You're supposed to know all this stuff know, off the top I of your know. head. I know. 30 to 40 percent of the fees um, that are charged in West Dallas haven't been paid. And they say they do have a collections agency and they are pursuing these delinquent accounts. But obviously not everyone's paying them. And actually in some of the communities where they decided not to institute these fees, I'm told it's because they thought it, it would be difficult to get that money, even there, if they did send out a bill. There are an awful lot of people that most, I'd say probably most people, I don't know if it's most or not, a lot of people like to pay their bills. And even if they don't think they're responsible, they're going to pay. I'm sure that's not a great solution for someone who always pays their bills to know, oh, well, if I just let it go, it'll probably be okay. Yeah, that's that's the idea. And sometimes these bills are confusing when they come in the mail um, because of the way they're coded. It looks like it might be an ambulance fee. And you'll think, well, nobody was taken away in an ambulance. So there's some work that goes into deciphering these bills when they arrive in the mail and a lot of confusion. I'm the type where I would just automatically assume it was a scam and throw it out, <laughs> which is probably bad. And maybe but that's I've done, what I've are done doing. that a couple of times, uh, much to my husband's <laughs> dismay. Hopefully not with your credit card bills. No, this is a not scam. With, I'm not paying. 
paying visa. Well, sometimes I wish those were a scam. <laughs> well, we should point out that in most cases, the responsible driver's insurance will cover this. And for Ed, that took a little time to figure out with his uh, the other driver's insurance company um, because they didn't quite understand what the bill was for either. So in a way, I mean, you are being charged because it's through insurance, um, but you aren't necessarily going to have to pay it out of your own pocket if the responsible driver is going to pay for it through their own insurance. And sometimes that's a big if. I don't know if you went down this road at all, and I don't know if there would be. You're talking about all these different communities have sort of different variations of the same idea, Mm -hmm. or many do. And this is, you got the sense this is becoming more and more common? In Milwaukee County, there are only three communities that don't have a fee like this. Do you know if an organization like the League of Wisconsin Municipalities is anyone sort of setting up what's a best practice in this regard? Is is there any sort of a standard, or is this just sort of happening willy nilly community to community? I think it's so new that they haven't really looked into it yet. And when I started contacting groups like the League, I got the impression that they didn't know a whole lot about it yet. And maybe that's because a lot of people aren't objecting at this point. I think there's only a few hundred bills going out a year in West Dallas. Um, so maybe as more and more people start receiving these bills, um, they'll start hearing more objections and they'll look into it more. But maybe people don't care because it's generally covered by insurance. And often it's non-residents. And so maybe that's what's going to happen. If you're a resident, you might be happy about this because you're saying my tax dollars already pay for this. They participated in the use of the service, even though they didn't cause the crash. And now this keeps my taxes lower. Exactly. I I, I don't live in West Dallas. I certainly, any community that would have one of these, I certainly think there would be, I think if you objectively asked most people the question, do you think the person not responsible for a crash ought to have to pay this. I've got to think overwhelmingly people would say no. I think so. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it completely depends on what the circumstances of the crash are, right? That's why it's so difficult because it's always he was to blame or she was to blame and these, com- these, these situations get really complicated. Nobody ever wants to admit they're at fault. But in this case, we did know that the other driver in Ed's crash was cited at the scene for causing the crash. We had police body cam video where the police told you know, the the driver's family that he was responsible for the crash. So we did know for sure that it wasn't Ed's fault. It would be more complicated if you didn't know who was at fault for a crash, which is why maybe they bill both parties in some cases. I'm sure they, the fire department doesn't suddenly want to become the arbiters of fault in every traffic accident. No, and I, the police department doesn't want to get dragged into that either. We've talked about that for other stories involving car crashes. But um, this is just one of the many cases that Contact 6 is willing to look into. Um, we take all sorts of complaints about area businesses or people's neighbors, as we've talked about in previous podcasts. Um, so if you have an issue and you want to bring it to us, you can always um, call us on the Contact 6 line. It's 414 586 2666, and we'd be happy to try to help you figure out um, a solution to your problem. So that's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party questions. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked at parties or events. Assuming we go to parties or events. You here's say the that catch. Every time. I know I do. I do. You're right. <laughs> but here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is going to be. And uh, I think that really kind of struck us last week because I don't think any of us were quite prepared. But here Took we go. A serious turn. This is authentic. We don't know what's in these envelopes. Um, that's all executive producer Leanne, who's 
putting us up to this. So we have several envelopes in front of us, and we're going to open one at random. And I'm so, going to hold them out to you, Brian, because you haven't so opened Jenna one yet. Jenna is uh, offering me. Okay, I'm going to take this one right take here. one out of the pile. All right. Okay. <clears throat> and the winner is... What's breaking news like? So, I'll start. All right. <laughs> Please do. I will say that in Milwaukee, it's definitely um, a breaking news market, and there's a lot of pressure to get there and get set up right away. Um, and sometimes you are going on air when you've only been on a scene for 10, 15 minutes. So the pressure is on because you're trying to take in immediately what's going on, you know, what agencies are there, um, who's at the scene, is it is it victims who are at the scene still, is it just neighbors watching what's going on? And sometimes your first live shot when you get to breaking news is just telling people what you can see. So you're saying, we are here, there is police tape behind me, you can see this agency is here, and this agency, and this agency, and neighbors are gathering. You're literally just saying what you see for those first live shots. In college, we called those thumb suckers. Exactly. And then you often say, and we're working to find out more. We never say, we don't know. Because that's... (laughs) We are working to find out more. I mean, if you were honest, you'd just get there and the anchor tosses to you and says, what do you know? And you say, I know what you told me before I left the station. Right. That's what I know. And often, <laughs> back I mean, you. people are back at the station helping you out. If you're in a quick turnaround situation as the reporter on the scene, there are people back at the station making phone calls for you so you can just take in what's happening on the scene. But it really is a test of how good of a reporter you are. If you can get there in 10 minutes later, be on air and not appear flustered and try to gather all the information you can. Um, it's all much harder when it's snowing or it's raining or it's 20 degrees below zero. Or there are people dancing in the background. That happens, that happens too. Yeah. Yep. And emotions run high sometimes, so crime scenes are difficult places to be. But um, you get a bit of a rush sometimes if it's something really fast moving and you know it's going to be big news. Sometimes there's a, a bit of a rush that kicks in and that'll carry you through. Well, and there's definitely something to the notion, though, of you getting there and just describing what you see. Because if you're anyone else, the whole point of, of covering breaking news often is that we're at home and we can't be there. Mm-hmm. And we don't want 80,000 people rushing to the scene of whatever yeah, the thing don't. is. So our job is to get there and be your eyes and your ears. Here's what I see. Here's what I hear. These cars are coming and going. These agencies are coming and going, and we'll find out more as we have time. And when you've been doing it for a while, I think your observational skills get pretty good, and you start to know, okay, for these kinds of stories, here are the questions I need to ask. I know um, my first job out of school was in Toledo, Ohio, and I was the morning show reporter, and there were a lot of arsons in Toledo. So especially in the summer, pretty much every other day, you were live at an arson. So you... It, it can be, I don't want to say good practice because it's breaking news. It's usually not something good that's happening, but you get a better sense of what to look for. But you're also looking for what makes this different? How does this affect people who don't live on this particular street? And you're trying to filter the information you get really quickly. Um, Sometimes neighbors will approach you on a scene and they'll tell you what happened, but you'll kind of have something in the back of your head saying, "Mm, I'm not going to run that yet. I'm going to make sure I hear what the police have to say first. I want to take in a little bit more before I feel comfortable going back to that interview. And sometimes you won't use it because it becomes clear that person did not know what they were talking about. But there is, um, I guess, a, a formula that 
you know, police departments will follow. You know, they know if there's a big incident that's going on, they're going to set up a scene somewhere nearby where all the media can go and they'll tell you when you're going to be getting updates. And sometimes it's just you know, chaos and you're all running around trying to figure out what's going on. But if the police department knows what they're doing and they have big news often enough, they'll set up a staging area and we'll all go there and wait for information. Over the many, many years, and there was a time when I was doing breaking news as well, and and you oftentimes get to these scenes and they're already controlled environments where Mm -hmm. the the police tape is set up or the fire department is set up. Here's where the media is going to be and you're not going any further. But there are many times you arrive at these scenes and you're there at the same time, first responders are getting there, or maybe even in some cases before, before that, and you're seeing a raw situation unfold. And, and there are times that are, there are in, incredibly dramatic things that happen right in front of your eyes, and you're still trying to, to understand what's the danger here and what's going on. Am I in danger? Are the people around me? Are the people in the neighborhood? You know, what's the situation? Um, you get there; it's a very raw scene. And then there's also the added challenge of. Picture this, all of the different TV stations having all of their reporters lined up next to each other, and we're all going live at the exact same time, and we're all talking at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Have you ever watched a live shot on TV and you can hear someone else talking, giving their report in the background? It's very distracting. It's actually really distracting in person, and you really have to learn how to focus and try to block out what everybody else is saying around you, um, because you're all reporting at the same time. Or your producers in your ear, because we wear earpieces, your producers in your ear saying, hey, we just found this out, and you're digesting the information while you're speaking and then trying to communicate in a way that makes sense. Um, it's something, it, it, it is a, an adrenaline rush that I think you don't really understand until you've been there. It's very different from a lot of other television news, which is scripted. You're reading from a script. It's an introduction. It's a, it's a tag after your story and maybe mm-hmm. even a scripted question for the anchors to ask you. So you sort of know what's coming when you're in that environment of breaking news Ad-lib skills are key. The ability to talk and, and think on your feet. All right. it, it, it's a test, especially early on, you know, when you're new at this, to try to suddenly talk about what's going on with all of those other distractions around you. I think it definitely is a test. And take like an election night, for example. You're kind of on standby the whole night in case the producer needs to come to you and fill some time. So sometimes they'll give you a five-minute warning and they'll say, just talk until I tell you to stop. <laughs> and that's a real test, trying to fill the time and you don't know when they're going to come back to the anchors on the set and you're just jabbering away. So be kind when watching <laughs> reporters on air sometimes. Well, and that's sometimes when we start talking more about what we don't know than uh, than what we do, right? Mm-hmm. Here are all the things we're waiting to find out. Exactly. Election nights are unique because nothing day. happens and then nothing happens and then nothing happens and then everything, everything happens. happens. All the things. And it's all right about news time mm-hmm. when that's going on. Thank you for listening to Open Record. We'd like to quickly thank the people helping us make this happen. Producer Pete, our editor Dave Machuda, and executive producer Leanne Watson. And if you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.